You're listening to sermons from Redeemer Church in Round Rock, Texas. Redeemer is a gospel-centered, missional family learning and living the way of Jesus in the suburbs of Austin. Well, good morning. Good morning, Redeemer family. If you are new with us, or if I have not had the the privilege and the pleasure to meet you. My name is Rick Bowers. I'm one of the pastors here at Redeemer. And this morning, we're going to be walking together through the text we just read. And in a way, it is a text on giving. And so that's what we're going to be walking through this morning. But before you reach down, cover up your pocketbooks and begin to think of it that way, let's wait and see what we actually get to and what type of giving we're actually talking about this morning. If you haven't already, go ahead and turn to this text in your Bible. It's going to be Mark chapter 12, verse, we'll start in verse 35. We've been walking through the gospel of Mark since last year, and our current trajectory in Mark is going to take us all the way up to Easter Sunday, where we're going to read about and where we're going to celebrate our risen King. And as we've journeyed through Mark, we've been constantly confronted by this King, We've been confronted by the ways of his kingdom, and we've seen him show us more and more what those ways look like. And week by week, in different ways, we've had to answer in our own lives, will we follow this king, or will we follow someone else, or we follow something else? And last week, we faced that question head on. Pastor Jordan walked us through a text where we see a scribe ask Jesus, which one is the greatest commandment? He asks Jesus. And Jesus doesn't just give him one commandment, but he gives him two commandments to keep. And ultimately and thankfully, we learn how we can look to Jesus as the only one who can perfectly fulfill all the laws and the commandments of God. And this morning, as we move into our text, I'd like for us to orient ourselves once again to the series of events we've gone through, because it's going to be really important for us today as we walk through the text. Today, everything is coming to a culmination in the temple courts. If you guys remember, back at the start of chapter 11 of Mark's gospel, Jesus enters into Jerusalem. He enters into Jerusalem riding on a colt with the people praising him as the Messiah, the Christ, the the king who's come to save and rescue them. And eventually, Jesus makes his way into the temple area. And if you remember, as he makes his way into the temple, he gets really upset at what he sees. He overturns tables. He disrupts the religious activity that's happening there. And that doesn't make the religious leaders happy. They're not happy about this. They're angered. They're frustrated. And so Mark shows us these various interactions between these religious leaders and Jesus. For the past several Sundays, we've walked through those interactions after question after question has been levied at Christ, and he's responded in various ways. But if you were paying attention last week, you'll notice that something happened. The questions end. In verse 34, Mark says, no one dared to ask him any more questions. What we're going to see this morning is that it's Jesus now who's going to ask the question. He could ask any question he wanted to ask. So let's see what question he asks, and let's see what it actually reveals to us this morning. Let me pray for us, and we'll get right into our text. God, you are the ancient of days. You are faithful. 
and you hear us, you always hear us. I just ask that you would incline your ear towards us this morning and you would open up our hearts and our minds to receive what you might have for us. Let your spirit work, deliver the truth of your word to us in each unique way that we might need it, and let Jesus be our shepherd and our guide. We love you. Amen. Let's look at the first two verses of our text again. Follow along with me, starting in verse 35. And as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, How can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself, in the Holy Spirit, declared, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord, so how is he his son? And the great throng heard him Gladly. I want to let you know right up front that as we start to unpack this early part of our text today, I'm going to ask you guys to stay with me. We're going to have to do a little work right at the beginning to see what's happening, and then I hope things will become clear for us. So let's look at this question by Jesus. Right away, we see that it's about two things. The question is related to the scribes and to what they know. And the question's related to the Messiah and to who he is. And this really frames up our text and our sermon this morning. There's a way to the life of the scribes, and there's a way to the life of the Messiah. And ultimately, those things are not compatible. That's what we're going to see today, and it's also what Jesus is going to warn us about. So first, we said that the question relates to the scribes. Now, last week, Jordan did a great job of reminding us what a scribe is. Remember, a scribe is an expert in Israelite law, a law given in the scriptures. So the scribes are experts in the scriptures. They would write commentaries on them, and they would teach them, and they would dissect them, and they would argue about them. They were the ultimate authority of the scriptural text. They knew all there was to know about the scriptures. So keep that in mind, because that's going to be important for us here. Next, we said that the question also relates to the Messiah. The topic of Messiahship has been all throughout Mark's gospel as we've journeyed through it. It's been all around Jesus as he's traveled with his disciples and as he's taught and as he's interacted with people. And the question is, is this the Messiah or isn't it? Should I follow this man or shouldn't I? Jesus even asks Peter in the gospel, he says, who do you say that I am? So this question of Jesus sort of teases up this topic of Messiahship. And what it does is call call up the common belief of Israel regarding the Messiah, a belief that would have been taught by the scribes. And that is that the Messiah would come from the family line of David. The prophets had made that clear. The scribes taught it, and the people believed it. The Messiah would be a flesh and blood human king and part of David's family line. This is what Israel believed and expected about the Messiah. So let's look at the question that Jesus presents. He says, how can the scribes say that the Christ, the Messiah, is the son of David? And then Jesus quotes a scripture. He quotes Psalm 110. Which Jesus says that David wrote, but Jesus makes it clear that it wasn't just David, just David writing who wrote this psalm. It was David inspired by the Holy Spirit. Jesus reminds the people of this when he asked this question. This wasn't new to them. The Israelites believed that 
the writings of Scripture were inspired by the Holy Spirit. And here's a quick aside. We believe that too. We believe that these Scriptures, that your Bible is inspired, that the Holy Spirit worked through human authors to communicate to us exactly what God intended to communicate to us, not in a way in which um, Paul or Peter or Mark were sort of like a court stenographer and the Holy Spirit's just sort of yelling into their ear, but that the Holy Spirit inspired them to write through their nuances, their context, through their personality, and by doing so, it's now our scriptures, which are exactly what God intended to communicate to us. All right, back to the question. The fact that Jesus points out the authorship of David and the Holy Spirit puts weight behind what Jesus is asking. Because it's not only David asking this question, it's David inspired by God the Spirit. And here's the question. It's what David says in Psalm 10. Jesus quotes it in verse Psalm 110. Jesus quotes it in verse 36. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. So what does David mean? This might be helpful for us. Eugene Peterson, in the message translation of your Bible, puts it this way. I think we have a slide for you. If in your ESV Bible, if that's what you have in front of you, it will say, the Lord says to my Lord. The message translation helps us a little bit. It says, God said to my master. So essentially, David is saying, God said to my master, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. Now, we know who David would be calling his God, but who would David be calling his master? Who would have authority over King David? There's no ruler over King David unless David is talking about the Messiah, the promised king to come. And that's exactly who he's talking about. So David says, God said to my Messiah... Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. But here it is. Here's the catch that Jesus is pointing out. If Messiah comes from the line of David and is simply a mortal human king, then how is David calling him master? Because no father would ever call their son or their descendant master or lord. Especially in this culture, no one further down the family line would call someone earlier in the family line, especially if you're King David, master or Lord. So here's what Jesus is sort of stirring up. The scribes, he's saying the scribes who have taught you guys the scriptures and who claim to know the scriptures and who have argued with me about the scriptures and tried to trap me with the scriptures, what do they think of the Messiah? What do they think of the Christ that the scriptures talk about? And the same silence and the same bit of confusion, which is probably in here right now, I'm guessing is what Jesus expected from his listeners. The question is meant to be an enigma. It's not meant to be answered. It's a rhetorical question. But it is meant to cause its hearers to listen and think, and analyze, and question, who is this Messiah that's greater than King David? What Jesus is pointing out is that according to David and the Holy Spirit, 
the Messiah will not only come from the family line of David, but he'll be something else also. He'll mysteriously be something more, something superior to David, because David is calling him Lord Master. And we know, looking back, that's because the Messiah is not just a human king. He's God in flesh. And so there's the Messiah part of our question that Jesus stirs up. Now, what about the scribe part of the question? Remember, we said the question was about the scribes and the Messiah. The question of Jesus calls into doubt the knowledge of the scribes. He's saying to these scribes who claim to be expert in the scriptures and who teach them to you, do they really know what they say they know? They teach the scriptures again and again, and they memorize them, and they teach them to others, and they write them on the walls of their houses, and they pour over them thinking that there's somehow life in them, but they're missing it. They're missing what the scriptures are pointing to and what they're bearing witness about. They are missing the Messiah. Church family, the scriptures that the scribes studied and that we study and that we memorize and that we walk through are not meant to be an end of themselves. All of the Old Testament, all of the New Testament point us directly to the Messiah, to Jesus Christ. And it does so through types and figures and prophecy and shadows. All of Scripture is bearing witness to the Messiah, to the love of God for sinners by sending Jesus the Messiah to die for their sins and rise again in victory. And the scribes claim to know these scriptures. They spend their lives studying them, but they've missed the point of them. And this is the opening up of the warning in our text today. The warning is that we can know the scriptures without knowing the God of the scriptures. The scribes know these scriptures better than anyone else, but they don't know the God to whom the scriptures are pointing to. They know about him, but they don't know him. So this first part of the warning for us today is this. What about us? Do we know these scriptures without knowing the Lord Jesus Christ to whom they're testifying? Because there's a way in which that can happen for us. There's a way in which we can read our Bible and we place ourselves at the center of the narrative instead of placing Christ there. There's a way in which we can have so much knowledge about the scripture that we can look down on other people who don't. We can know the Bible. We can argue about the Bible. We can have opinions about the Bible and we can beat other people down with the Bible, but be blind to the true savior to whom the scriptures are pointing us to. You can know religion so well that you can act it out in your sleep. You can play a Christian all day long, but have a giant gaping hole where Christ should be. In his book, Knowing God, J.I. Packer writes this, One can know a great deal about godliness without much knowledge of God. It depends on the sermons one hears, the books one reads, and the company one keeps. In this analytical and technological age, there is not a shortage of books on the church book tables or sermons from the pulpits on how to pray, how to witness, how to read our Bibles, how to tithe our money, how to be a young Christian, how to be an old Christian, how to be a happy Christian, how to get consecrated, how to lead people to Christ, and generally how to go through all the various motions which the teachers in question associate with being a Christian believer. 
Yet one can have all this and hardly know God at all. We have to ask ourselves this morning, does this describe any of us, church family? It certainly describes these religious leaders confronting Jesus. They have knowledge of God, but they don't actually know God. They can quote the scriptures, but do they really know the God of the scriptures? And the first part of our warning is, do we? Let's keep moving and hear the second part of this warning from Jesus. Look with me, starting in verse 38. And in his teaching, he said, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes, and they like greetings in the marketplaces, and they have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. If you were to read the parallel to this text in the Gospel of Matthew, you'd be reading a lot longer than we just read. Matthew, more than Mark, dives into the detail of what's happening here. You can write down and read Matthew chapter 23 for homework, but here's why I bring that up. What I don't want you to do is read these couple of lines from Mark and think that this is no big deal. This is an extremely serious and heavy moment in Scripture. Jesus is condemning these religious leaders for what he's witnessed in their lives. And Mark specifically points out three things for us. Pride, greed, and hypocrisy. Jesus has just challenged the knowledge of the scribes by showing that they know about the God of the Bible, but they don't personally know the God of the Bible. And he's going to point out that when that's the case in a human life, it leads to sin. On knowing God should bear good fruit in our lives. Only knowing about God often bears rotten fruit in our lives. When we have knowledge of God, without having a personal relationship with him, without following him, it leads to sin. So what does Jesus point out in the lives of the scribes? He says the scribes were showy. They were extravagant. They were gaudy. They would wear special robes so they could easily be seen and easily recognized. So they would stand out in a crowd. And not because, um, not like a paramedic or a police officer who does this because they want people to come to them for help. But they wanted to do this so that people would look at them and recognize them for how special they were. And this status would gain them things. They would get special privileges at dinners and at gatherings and at feasts and at weddings. People would move out of the way and they would ooh and awe these scribes. And they would give them the absolute best seats in the most visible places. And they craved this kind of attention and praise. Every moment of it fed their pride and it stroked their ego. They were using their knowledge about God to gain recognition for themselves. But it's not just pride that Jesus points out. They also devour widows' houses. The meaning of this phrase is a little debated, but what is clear is that they would take advantage of those in need. Now, scribes wouldn't make money for their knowledge of Scripture. Nobody paid them for that. But they could make a little bit of money if they sort of coerced it from people. If they were able to convince people that they needed 
some of their money or make them feel obligated to give to them. And who might find themselves in a situation like that? A widow might. In this time period, in any time period, being a widow is hard. In this time period, it would have been especially difficult for things like protection and provision and for care. It would have been a scary and a painful time. And a time when you might need help, you might feel lost, you might need guidance. And who just happens to show up at your door? A scribe does. How wonderful, a man who knows the scriptures and can tell me about my God and can remind me of who I am and remind me of all these encouraging things. And he'll do that for a little money on the side. Because, you know, he's, he's closer to God anyway. And God hears his prayers more anyway because he's more religious, right? If we had time... We could journey over to Exodus 22, or maybe Deuteronomy 10, or 14, or 24, or Leviticus 19, and we could spend time examining all the laws, and all the protection, and all the provision that God commanded Israel to provide for the weak, and the needy, and the outcast, and the orphan, and the widow. God's heart is oriented towards these kinds of people, and he commands his people's hearts to be oriented in that direction also. The scribes knew this and ignored it all. And they used their knowledge about God for their own financial gain. And then we get to the last phrase. And you're at, if you have your ESV, it'll say, a pretense, for a pretense, they make long prayers. The word is rendered as pretense, probably, in your Bible, but it means a show or a cover. So not only would these scribes be pridefully prancing around and taking advantage of people for their own financial gain, but to cover it up, they would pray extra long prayers so they would seem religious, so they could cover up the sins they knew they were committing. They would use their knowledge about God to pretend to be someone who loved him and obeyed him so they could cover up who they really were. Now, I think we need to pause right here because we need to be aware of two things about this warning from Jesus. This is both a warning towards us and this is a warning for us. The first is this, a warning towards us. Everything in your Bible is meant to teach and shape you. It's all profitable. Sometimes we read it or we're taught it and the Holy Spirit convicts us because we're guilty of what we're reading. And sometimes we read it and we're meant to say, there but for the grace of God go I. But what we're never meant to do is stand and self-righteously point a finger. Jesus condemns that behavior in Luke 18. We're not meant to self-righteously say, thank God I'm not like these scribes. Instead, we're meant to examine our own lives. And say, God, is this me? Am I like the scribes in any way? Do I know your scriptures without knowing you? Do I live hypocritically? Do I live pridefully because of my religion or my virtue or my leadership? Do I live in a way where I'm greedy or where I take advantage of other people, where I try to show off and make people think that I'm great? If there's any of this in my life, Lord, show me so that I can turn from it and repent. 
The second part of this is a warning for us. Jesus is telling the people, beware of the scribes. So there's a clear call here that as people following Jesus, we should beware of leaders like this. And we should. They're all around. And they're on podcasts, and they write books, and they pastor big churches, and they pastor small churches, and they have big followings, and they have little followings. And some of you are sitting in this room right now, and you are carrying with you deep and painful wounds and trauma because of religious leaders just like this, who know the scriptures without knowing the God of the scriptures, and have in some way, shape, or form manipulated or abused or hurt you. And here's what you need to know right now. Jesus sees you. Jesus knows what you feel because he's experienced it, he's seen it, he's witnessed it, and it's not his desire that you run from him and his church, but it's his desire that you run to him and his church, where he'll heal you and love you. Jesus has made it clear With his warnings and condemnation, there is extreme danger for us when we know the scriptures without knowing the God of the scriptures. So we hear the warnings. What are we to do? Read with me starting in verse 41. And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums, and a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, truly, I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box, for they all contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. Jesus takes a seat. He's done debating with the religious leaders in the temple. He's had enough. He's exposed who they really are. And and Mark tells us that Jesus takes a seat across from the treasury and just sort of begins people watching. Now, the treasury was a series of offering boxes, and people would come up to these boxes, and um, there was a metal tube on top, and they would take their money out, and they would put their offering into the offering box for the temple. And what Jesus sees are two types of offerings. One offering is, come, is coming from people who have plenty and are putting in large amounts of what they have. And the other offering is coming from someone who is poor and who's giving out of her poverty and putting in a mere two copper coins. And as Jesus sees this taking place, he calls his disciples over, says, do you see? Do you see the rich giving their offering? And do you see the widow giving her offering?" What Jesus is pointing out to his disciples is that there are those who are wealthy and have plenty and they're coming to give. And what they're giving is out of their abundance, their extra. It's the interest on the interest. It's the skim off the top. 
the giving an amount that they won't particularly notice or feel because they have so much, an amount that they won't even miss. And then there's the widow. And she's contributing not out of her abundance like the others, but out of her poverty. She doesn't have much, but she's giving her very best. She can't give her extra because she doesn't have extra. She can't give her interest because she doesn't have interest. She's not giving the skim off the top. She's giving the butter on the bottom. She's not keeping anything for personal gain. She's putting in, what's the text say? Everything she has to live on. So what's Jesus pointing out to his disciples? He's pointing out that there is a system of values that has overtaken God's people. A system of values teeming with pride and greed and hypocrisy, a culture that's become thick of it, thick with it, where personal gain rules the day and as we saw even leads to the abuse of those in need that God commanded his people to care for. A system of values that has shaped the heart of the people to praise and worship the amount of the gift far more than the heart of the giver. To praise and hold high the rich and to abuse and neglect the poor and needy. And this is not the way of the kingdom of God. In fact, this is the coming to a head moment in our text. And a trailer for chapter 13 is that because of Israel's apostasy, abandoning God and abusing his people, God will bring down judgment and wrath on Israel. So what we've seen this morning is that Jesus has put on display the life and the way of the scribes. They know the scriptures, but they have no real idea of the God of the scriptures and are only interested in gaining for themselves. They're giving nothing to God out of what he's given them, and that's their way. But the way of the Messiah is different. The way of the Messiah is to not only know about God, but to know God. Jesus doesn't just know about his Father. He has a relationship with his Father. He doesn't seek his own personal gain, but he seeks to bring glory to God the Father. And Jesus has also put that on display. He's done so by pointing out the widow. The widow has given her very best. She's given all she had, her everything. That is the way of the kingdom of God. Why? Because that's exactly what the king of the kingdom has done. It's the way of Jesus. Jesus has given all for the glory of his father. He gives his life on the cross. And he does not keep his riches and his abundance and his life for himself. But he gives it to you and to me through our faith in him. Paul says in 2 Corinthians, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. It's the way of the kingdom because God the Father gave his best by sending his Son so that we could be reconciled to him. And his son, Jesus, gives his best 
as he gives his life on the cross for his people. In Christ, God has kept nothing for himself, but has given everything to us. That is the way of the kingdom. As we close this morning, I mentioned that at the beginning of our time together that this would be a sermon on giving, and it is. And it might be tempted to think that it's all about finances, but it's not. If we think that way, we're actually thinking too small. The value system of the kingdom of God is not centered around money. Money is a reality that helps to advance the kingdom here on earth. But the highest commodity in the kingdom isn't money, it's life. God didn't just promise us riches in eternity when he gave us his son. He promised us life. He promised us abundant life. Your life is what matters most to God. You have finances to give for sure, but you also have your life to give. Christ is showing us that in God's kingdom, the gift isn't measured by how much you give, but by how much you keep for your own gain. And that's true for finances, gifts, talents, responsibilities, leadership, relationships, vocation, all of your life. So the question we're left with this morning is will we keep that life for ourselves or will we live the way of the kingdom and give every bit of that life for the glory of God? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I ask that you would search our hearts this morning as we've heard a warning and we're reminded of who you are and we're reminded of our call to follow the way of Christ. Just ask that you would search us and know us. If there are areas in our life that we need to repent of and turn from areas that we're holding on for ourselves and for our own gain, that you would illuminate those, that you would show those to us, that you would be merciful and reveal those to us, that you would convict us of them and give us strength to turn and repent. And I ask that you would fill us with joy, reminding us that we're yours and that you've promised us so much You promised us life abundantly. We have a future. We have a hope. And ask that that would encourage our hearts this morning and lift up our hearts this morning. We ask these things in your son's mighty name. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you are looking for info, find our website at RedeemerRR.org or download the Redeemer Round Rock app from the Android or iOS app store. 